Welcome to our CL. How are y'all doing? You okay? You made it through the holidays? Or well, no, you made it through Christmas. You got one more to go. Uh, if your holidays are as crazy as mine, uh, I'm happy to be alive. I have, I got two birthdays in December, Christmas in December, uh, and then uh, now we're moving towards New Year's. We're going to go visit my uh, wife's family here, leaving probably right after the service uh, this morning. So uh, I was thinking, actually, in the back, um, how fitting it is that New Year's kind of fits right alongside or dovetails uh, Christmas uh, the way that it does. Because, you know, it's, it's neat that we kind of celebrate the Lord's birth and his coming uh, right as we're kind of also thinking about a new year. And because obviously Christ's advent um, essentially initiates a new possibility for us. Um, he's the reason why we get kind of a do over, if you will, and get a chance to um, follow uh, after him and, and, and live afresh and find fulfillment and satisfaction in God. So it's kind of cool. I'd encourage you as you're even in the midst of the holiday season, uh, pause and, and ask God what he would have for you in 2020 and recognize it's because of Jesus that we even are here and breathing and have this opportunity to grow and learn and, and, and make resolutions or whatever it may be. Uh, but with that, let's um, let's dive into God's word this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we will uh, get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, it's our late Christmas gift to you. You're welcome. Please take it. Um, if you know someone who you'd want to give it away to, by all means, uh, our mission as a church is to spread God's word near and far. But we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. If you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament. So the second part of the, the scriptures there um, kind of begin with uh, Matthew's Gospel, then Mark's Gospel, and um, then Luke. And chapter 18, verses 18 to 34 is what I'm going to read. Though we're really going to kind of cover maybe the first half of it this morning. So let me read it. We'll pray and then dive in. The ruler asked him, he's talking to Jesus now, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to him, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. Let's pray. God. We come in this morning, perhaps tired, perhaps weary. Perhaps hungry, perhaps thirsty at a level deeper than food or water can get to. But our souls are longing for you, even if we don't realize it. 
Perhaps we've been wandering here or there towards this or that thing. Perhaps we've been distracted with what the world says we should be busy with. Perhaps we've set up other kings upon the throne of our heart, other gods. We've been let down. We've been broken. We've been dissatisfied, discontent, anxious, troubled, sorrowful. God, it is our prayer, it is my prayer that this morning you would use our time together to restore us to yourself and in that restore us to joy and life. And even perhaps salvation. God, we know that we were created for you and our souls will find no rest until they find their rest in you. And so here this morning, we're just asking. Let that be the case for us. Let us find our rest. Let us find our satisfaction. In you. Let us return to you as our first love. Would you use your word to convict? Would you use your word to comfort? Would you let the Christ and his cross be elevated as the means of our redemption and the means of our joy? I see things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's get going here then. Um, The story that we're looking at this morning, perhaps you're familiar with it. Uh, If you are, um, maybe you've come at it from a certain angle in the past. It's, It's the story dealing with the, you know, what's typically called the rich young ruler. And it's this guy who's got all this money. Jesus asked him to, you know, give up his money. And, 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 and he's sad. He doesn't want to do it. And then there's this talk about, hey, listen, how hard it is for the rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's harder than uh, it's harder for a camel or for that than for a camel to even get through the eye of a needle. And we hear all this talk and maybe kind of spun it in your own mind or even heard it preached where the focus seems to be kind of on money and riches and wealth. And the danger therein. And we kind of get, we kind of wonder, what are we, how are we supposed to interpret this and all this talk about possessions and things? And it's true that on the surface, the, the discussion does tend to or seem to revolve around this idea of wealth and riches and money and, and, and the danger involved in it. But if we look a little bit closer, What we find is that the deeper, I think, more fundamental issue that Christ is addressing here has to do with uh, what I might call instead uh, perhaps the, the attachments of the heart. The attachments of the heart. If you were here last week when we celebrated Christmas together as a church and I talked about that now 300-year-old uh, Christmas carol hymn, Joy to the World, it's, it's not all that different from what I addressed there, what we're going to be kind of looking at uh, this morning. Last week, it was this idea of preparing him room. Let every heart prepare him room, right? Our hearts can get full of all sorts of stuff and there's no room for Jesus by the time he comes knocking, It's the same idea, I think, underneath this story with this rich young ruler. Jesus is is trying to dialogue with him and with us, by extension, about the attachments of the heart. What what the heart is, is prone to attach to. For this man, it was clearly his money. It was clearly his his wealth, his stuff. But for us, it may be a different issue. It may be something else entirely. The question Jesus is wanting to drive here is simply this. What is it that you are trusting in? What is it that you are hoping in? What is it that you are loving above all else? What is it that you and I are attaching our hearts to? May not be money. May be something else. But whatever else our hearts may be attached to, God wants it to be him 
and him alone in the deepest sense. And I think that's really what he's getting at here. There's um, something that old theologians would talk about and they weren't scared to mention it like perhaps many of us are today. Uh, they would talk about God and his jealousy. But he is, in fact, a jealous God. And rightfully so, uh, we should not be, uh, though it may trouble us at first, we should not be ashamed or scared to say it because indeed God has said as much himself. Exodus 20, verse 5, he says it. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. His jealousy is one of his attributes. It's one of his many perfections. It's an aspect of his glory. But we are prone to misconstrue it, I think, misunderstand it. We're prone to kind of uh, 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 confuse what is meant by it. When we hear the idea of jealousy, if you're like me, we, we think of it in human terms. We think of it as the result of a sort of insecurity or something in God. And when, it, when, it's, when it's us... When it's uh, from the human perspective and it's jealousy in me, that is what it usually is, right? Uh, we get jealous because uh, somebody out there has something that I want and I can't seem to get it. When we hear jealousy, we think of like the high school boy who's kind of sitting at home during, you know, homecoming dance or whatever because his crush decided to go out with like the, the varsity quarterback, and so he's sitting at home and he's seething and he's, he's, he's jealous. For us, it's not a perfection. It's not a mark of strength or confidence. It's not something to be admired or praised. It's something a bit pathetic. It's a mark of shame. But for God, it is something entirely different. And we need to get that clear. God is not jealous for our hearts, for our affection, because he is needy or insecure. He's not wanting us to attach our hearts to him above all else because he somehow needs it. Quite the opposite, actually. He wants that for us because he knows how badly we need it. He knows how badly we need him. He knows what happens when we set up other kings, other gods on the throne of our hearts. That usually it is going to be those things situated there that we have placed our hope in, attached our heart to above all else that will be our undoing in the end. They will wreak havoc in our souls, leave us anxious, sorrowful, burdened, broken. They will elicit our demise. When we spiral off from God, who is the author of life, we spiral off into the realm of death. And so he knows that he's coming after us. God wants our hearts for himself because he wants what's best for us. Therefore, his jealousy is part of his glory. Part of his love, part of his perfection. And we ought to be thankful that even this morning, God is jealous for our affections. That's what we see happening in this text with this with this rich ruler. He's going after his heart. He's going after the attachments. He's going after what's underneath the surface. He's saying, I want that. That's what will you get that in here with me. Get that to me. And then we'll be able to bring you joy and bring you satisfaction and bring you life. But if you keep running that direction, it's going to end bad. However good it feels momentarily. So these are the sorts of things we're going to see play out in our text this morning. And I'm going to organize our journey through these verses under four headings. We're really only going to look at the first two this morning. We'll come back next week and look at the, the latter two. But the four headings would be these. First, reframing the discussion, verses 18 to 21. Second, reaching the heart, verses 22 and 23. And third, respecting the problem, verses 24 and 25. And fourth, and finally, realizing the solution, verses 26 to 34. 
So let me dive in then to those first two, beginning with reframing the discussion. And you can kind of keep your finger there, verses 18 to 21, because that's what we're going to look at here under this heading. Reframing the discussion. So we come to verse 18, and we meet this man identified as a ruler. Um, you don't know what that means. I don't exactly know what that means. Commentators don't really know what that means. They go different directions on it. Could be that he's a part of a ruler of a synagogue. Could mean he's part of the Pharisee crew. Could mean that he's got some sort of uh, secular position or, or political position in some way. We're not quite sure. What we do know is that this man seems to be a man of significant pedigree, achievement, and wealth. He's the sort of man, perhaps, that you and I would strive to be like, would want to be like. And this man approaches Jesus. He's heard of this man from Nazareth, and he is intrigued. He is interested. He wants to come and learn from what he will here call a good teacher. And he asks a good question, an honest and respectable question there. Verse 18, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an important question, one which we would do well to consider right along with him. And by the time Jesus gives him the answer, by the time we come out to the answer, which uh, we'll start to get towards this week and we'll we'll land even more fully next week, uh, we'll see, wow, what this man thought coming in and what he ends up with at the end, not what he nor probably what we would have expected. Nonetheless, Jesus is going to take his question now and he's going to attempt to answer it. But one of the first things he's going to have to do is reframe the discussion reframe the conversation that he's going to have with this man because he can already tell even by the way that question was was initially uh, uh, proposed uh, there is something a little bit off there is something uh, being hinted at that Jesus is going to need to deal with there's this sort of legalistic superficial framework that you can kind of tell this man is working within that Jesus is going to try to reframe He's going to try to push back and, 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 and reorganize so they can talk about it and this idea, this idea of eternal life rightly. So Jesus' first attempt to reframe things comes in verse 19. Uh, and this is initially uh, quite interesting and perhaps confusing. So Jesus pushes back on him and he says this, Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And we look at that, we just got done with Christmas season, right? And celebrating the incarnation of who? God himself, right? So Jesus is God himself come in the flesh. More specifically, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, taking on flesh on a rescue mission uh, to save sinners like you and me. Jesus is God, and yet we come here and we look at this and say, wait a minute. He's pushing back on the ruler's reference to him, even as good teacher. With the objection that no one is good except God alone. What do you make of that? Well, certainly some have looked at this and concluded, <laughs> you see, Jesus is not God. It's just a good man. He says so himself right here. Hey, only God is good. Why are you calling me good teacher? But of course, that's not the right way to take it. And actually, if you look more closely, you see, technically, he did not say here that he is not God. He only simply said that God alone is good. He is trying to push back, in other words, not on the idea that he is God, but on this man's mistaken notion that man in and of himself can somehow be good. Are, are you with me on that? He's not saying, listen, uh, I am not I am not good and I am not God. That would destroy everything else that we learn in the New Testament. He is rather saying, wait a minute, I want you to think about your question. I want you to think about the terms you're using. Why are you calling me good? 
You see, this man has this idea that men in and of themselves can be good. And of course, he probably is one of them. And Jesus wants him to stop on that for a moment and think, no, 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 wait a minute. Only God qualifies as good in the truest, deepest sense. You see, God has not changed his opinion about man and this now fallen state that we're in. What he said of us back in Noah's day is still true of us today. You remember, even after the flood, it uh, didn't fix things. God, in fact, makes a covenant, says, whoops, OK, even though men are going to continue to be evil, <laughs> I will not destroy the earth again the way that I did. But he says of us there, Genesis 6, 5, that every intention of the thought of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. It's not it's not uh, necessarily encouraging to think about the fact that in our natural state, what's going on in our hearts is only evil continually. And yet, if we really do dig down, we see that it is true. You see, we can take that evil and that stuff and bring it into a religious church, whatever context. We can clean it up on the outside. But when you get in, as we'll see, and you stir up the waters a bit, it's the same muck that comes out. There's still something wrong on the interior, something off with the heart. We like to think ourselves decent enough um, as human beings, and perhaps when we compare ourselves with others, maybe we are. Maybe we do stack up a little better here or there. Maybe we have done a few more good deeds or refrained from a few more bad deeds than that person. But when once we are compared, contrasted with the holy God and his goodness, his righteousness, his perfection, his purity, the only thing left for us to do at that point is what Peter did back in uh, Luke 5. When he catches just a slight glimpse of the glory of Christ. Here's what he says. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, when we look at one another, we think, hey, I don't use words like that. I don't watch things like that. I don't do things. I'm pretty good. But when we come to face the one who alone is good, namely God, all of a sudden we realize that the stuff we've been building our own self-image upon is just sand. And we fall with Peter, depart from me, I am a sinner. I don't, I don't even deserve to have you near. In fact, I don't want you near for fear that I get incinerated, right? That's the whole thing in the book of Exodus and Mount Sinai. Moses, you go up there. We're not going to go. Lest we die. Right? That's what we miss. That's the sort of thing that Jesus is trying to get this man to think about here. And he wants us to think about it as well. There is none who's good. But God alone. So that's the first thing way that Jesus is going to try to reframe things here. But then he pushes a little further. He, he, he takes it uh, a, a step uh, more. And he says this. He, if you notice, um, this, this man is asking kind of, what must I do? The question there, again, is already kind of hinting towards this legalistic framework that he has in his own mind that not only can I, you know, attain goodness, you know, but I'm going to attain that goodness by doing certain things. And so the question is, is good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is going to push back on this again. But what we notice is that it's like this man is, is stepping up for a race, but he's on the wrong side of the line. He's kind of off from the start. 
He's thinking about salvation in terms of his own efforts. The image in my mind is like if you're, if everyone else is racing and going this way and this guy's here and he very, when the gun goes off, he very well may sprint off faster than everybody else. All his zeal, all his energy, he's running, but he's running in the wrong direction. So the faster, the further, the harder that he runs, actually the, the further away he gets from the finish line. The further behind he gets. Because the starting point is wrong. His religion, it would seem, is an external list of do's and don'ts. And his concern is to uphold them. To prove himself to be good. And then by that, to merit or earn or inherit eternal life. He's missed it. He's missed it. Um, The kingdom of God and its economy is not uh, first works and then we might call grace and the gifts and things that come in. It's rather grace first and then works as, as, as those works flow out from a heart that's been transformed by the love of God for a sinner. So that we now love God and love others. That's how this thing works. Not works to grace, but grace to works. You with me? Confusing you. But here's what we see. It looks at first as if Jesus is kind of bending to this man's uh, logic, uh, to this man's line of questioning, does it not? When you look at it, it seems like this man asks for something to do, and then Jesus goes on to give him something to do. So, all right, you're a doer, you're one of those, you got the type A sort of thing, you want a list, I'll give you a list. Here it comes. He goes on to quote from the Ten Commandments, and he's focusing in on what we've uh, termed in the past the, the second table of the law. The Ten Commandments, you can kind of break them down into things concerning, namely our relationship with God, the first table of the law, and then our things concerning, namely relationships with, with neighbor, with other people, the second table of the law. And he goes on to quote from these things kind of having to do with our neighbor and love for neighbor. He says this, you know the commandments, verse 20, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. We look at that and we say, okay, he just gave him a bunch of things to do and not do. But upon closer evaluation, we see that again, here he is attempting to reframe the discussion. And bring things onto proper footing. Because as with the pushback above about this idea of being a good teacher, there's this sort of undercurrent in Jesus' communication here. There's this undertow that's intended by him to pull this rich ruler down towards the things of the heart, away from the surface, the external, towards the heart. He's going to get more and more direct as we go along, but he's doing that here even now. The law, if you recall, and we've talked about this in numerous numerous weeks now, um, the law was not given as, as a ladder by which men can climb up and be justified before God. Instead, it was rather intended to kind of expose our need for a Savior, our need for grace, our need for how far short we fall. The law was was given not to kind of uh, encourage and, and, and our own self-righteousness. It was given to expose our own depravity and our need for mercy, our need for righteousness outside of ourselves, our need for Christ and the gift of his salvation. That's the point of the law. And that's the way that Jesus is attempting to use it here. He's going to give him the law. As a way of saying, listen, okay, all right, we talked about how, you know, uh, uh, only God is good so that you would kind of get a sense that, gosh, maybe I am in fact sinful when you compare yourself to his goodness. Now let's look at God's perfect law and let's see how far we fall short. But what we notice is this man continues to miss Jesus's drift. He's stuck on the surface, as it were. Look at how he responds. Verse 21, he said, all these, these commandments, these things that you list, I have kept from my youth. And in other words, he, he looks and he goes, thank you so much, Jesus. You just confirmed what I already knew. I am awesome. 
I mean, you gave me the list. I've done the list. Heck, I've been doing that list since I was a young boy. Things are going to go well for me. I've got it handled. Good teacher. You rock. I'll see you in glory. And he's on his way. And it may well be that some of us, and we need to pause always, and because I realize we're always prone to just see it in everyone else, right? If you're married, you know this. You see all their faults, and they're trying so desperately to get you to see yours. <laughs> and you're trying so desperately to get them to see theirs. <clears throat> right back and forth like that. And a lot of times, we might look at this guy and go, gosh, he's so far off. And then we need to pause for a moment and go, wait a minute. Am I like this? Some of us, even in this room, may find that we feel uh, we are in the right with God because of the things we have done or not done. Because of our deeds. And, 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 and if they stack up in one way or the other, we will inherit eternal life or not. And Jesus here is trying to get this young ruler and us off of that footing entirely into a completely different frame where you and I are are, are recognizing, man, we are in need. We are in need of mercy from God and, and Christ. And that is our only hope. So Jesus is going to take us even further now. He's going to get more direct true religion true salvation is so much deeper than this superficial thing that this man and we often make it jesus is going to go now for the heart he's reaching the heart that's verses 22 and 23 now in the second heading in your handout Uh, look at verse 22 when jesus heard this he said to him one thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, I love how almost nonchalantly Jesus is like you and I, I'd be like trembling if I had to say this to someone. It sounds so rough and tough and all this. And he just kind of acts like, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just missing one thing. Just one thing. I'm I'm proud of you. Good job on the commandments. Good job on the list. Well well done. Uh, There's just one more thing you're you're, you're missing. You can just kind of see this guy going, what is it? I got it. I got it. You tell me. What is it? Oh, yeah, you just got to sell everything that you have. Just sell it all. Give it to the poor and come hang with me. And you imagine all of a sudden it's like kind of something settles in. Now all of a sudden Jesus is getting more direct. Jesus is going after the heart at this point. He's pushing through the commandments, through the surface, and he's grabbing a hold of of this man by the heart. He's showing this man in not so many words. God is not your God. But money has been set up there in, in his place. Again, one of the things we need to make clear, Jesus is not giving this man another thing to do. He's not giving this man one more kind of legalistic rule to follow. And that's kind of why I opened the way that I did. I know that we're prone to kind of go, well, what does this mean about money? And am I supposed to do this? And we get all these questions. Well, what is the eye of the needle? Maybe it was a gate and, and you know, a camel would walk through it. Or, you know, we have all these weird, we'll talk about it later. We have all these ways of trying to figure out what to do with money. And if Jesus is asking us about this and what should we do? And is this another rule that we all have to follow? And all these things really misses the point. The point is even deeper, actually, than another rule. The point is that this one thing that Jesus is touching on here is exposing that everything in this man's heart and life is off. Jesus knows that God is not on the throne. This man's heart is attached to money. And therefore, whatever else he's doing or not doing on the surface of things, it's not being done rightly because there's not love for God there. Ultimately, there's not, therefore, also love for neighbor. Now, here at this point, I thought of um, uh, Martin Luther's larger catechism. So Martin Luther was a reformer, right, uh, 1500s, and he wrote a, a, a sort of what, what you'd call a catechism to kind of help teach the truths of Scripture to the next generation. And in this larger catechism, he deals with, in particular, the Ten Commandments. 
And it's interesting because um, in these uh, Ten Commandments and in his kind of reference to them, he, he starts talking about how they all relate to one another. Right? This guy's here, this rich ruler guy is dealing with the commandments, thinking he's doing well and good and all of this. And really what Luther brings out in the larger catechism is what Jesus is getting at here. And that is that if you don't have the first and greatest commandment, then really you don't have any. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments is the linchpin or the, 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 the hinge or the gateway into all the others. You get that right, all the rest come with. You get that wrong, all the rest go with. First commandment, if you recall, was, is Exodus, in Exodus 23 is this. You shall have no other gods before me. That's just the first one out of the gate. Listen, I am uh, the one who, who freed you from the Egyptians, brought you to myself. You shall have no other God except me, before me. This now refers to the first table of the law. Those things and those commandments that deal with our relation with God and, and, and what we owe Him. Love the Lord. No idols. You know, don't use His name in vain. Keep holy the Sabbath day. Those are the things that you find there. And what's interesting is, is Jesus uses the second table, dealing with our love for neighbor, to back into the bigger problem. Namely, this man doesn't have love for God. Let me read to you a bit from Martin Luther now. This is profound. And you can always find my manuscripts online if you want to check this quote out later. A God, Luther says, is that to which we look for all good and in, it, in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him with our whole heart. As I have often said, the trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust are right, then your God is the true God. On the other hand, if your trust is false and wrong, then you have not the true God, for these two belong together, faith and God. That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. The purpose of this first commandment, therefore, is to require true faith and confidence of the heart. And these fly straight to the one true God and cling to him alone. The meaning is, see to it that you let me alone be your God and never seek another. In other words, whatever good thing you lack, look to me for it and seek it from me. And whenever you suffer misfortune and misfortune and distress, come and cling to me. I am the one who will satisfy you and help you out of every need. Only let your heart cling to no one else. He's, he's, he's right now just expounding upon the first commandment. He's saying, listen, what it means that you have no other God before him is that you, you're not trusting in, hoping, desiring, loving, looking to anything else in, in a more ultimate way than you're looking to him. That he is the one that you are thinking is going to be there for you when it all gives way. He's the one that's going to bring satisfaction for your soul. He's the one who's going to get you out of this mess or whatever it may be. Who's working good for you in it, right? He's the one. It's not uh, over there. If I just got more money, if I just got a better job, if I just got, you know, that relationship, if I just got whatever. When the heart attaches to those things with faith and hope and trust and delight... Well, then, you know, all of a sudden, the first commandment is in a precarious position in your own heart. And you are in danger of setting up for yourself an idol, a false god. He goes on later to say this, Luther again. And I just want to read a few more sentences and I'll be done. The first and chief commandment is the one from which all the others proceed. This word, you shall have no other gods, means simply you shall fear, love, and trust me as your one true God. Wherever a man's heart has such an attitude toward God, he has fulfilled this commandment and all the others. On the one hand, whoever fears and loves anything else in heaven and on earth, 
will keep neither this nor any other. Let me show you how this would play out in the rich ruler's life. I want to make sense of this for you. How if you don't have the one, you will not have any. And Jesus is here exposing that this man's self-evaluation is, I have kept all these from my youth. I am good and all these things. It's not standing on solid ground. Because he's, he's forfeited, he's abandoned, he's broken the first. So think of it. Think of this with me here. If the rich ruler has God truly as his God. Well, then if God is the one he loves, if God is the one he trusts, if God is the one he delights in, hopes in, rests in. Then when the stock market plunges. Or the burglar runs off with his stuff. In the night. Yes, he may be sad. Yes, it may be hard. Yes, it's a little scary. Not fun. But at the end of the day, he still has his God. You see. And therefore, he still has bedrock. He still has hope. He knows that God can work good from bad. He knows that something is going to come of this. He knows that his father will protect him, provide for him, care for him. And therefore, even in the face of losing all of his money, he is able to love not only God, but neighbor. He's not given over to lying and cheating and stealing and perhaps even murdering to get what he needs, right? He trusts God. Therefore, he is able, even in his own deficiency and lack, even though he doesn't have what he uh, thought he needed, he is still able to love others, trusting God. He is still able to be generous with what little he does have in compassion for those in need. Because he knows, seek first the kingdom. What you need will be added. Manna is going to come one day at a time, even if your barns are empty. You have God. But if God is not truly his God, if money is his God, though he says with his lips that Yahweh you know, this is, this is where Yahweh resides. If money is truly his God, if money and wealth and the things of this world are what he loves, where he trusts, you know, what he trusts in, what he delights in and so forth. Well, then when the market plunges and when the burglar runs off with his stuff in the night and he has nothing, well, it's over. It's over. The foundation he's been building his life upon just got ripped out from under him. Oh, sure. He could be a decent religious man. He could be a decent church going man. Generous when he had abundance. I could. I don't need to steal and cheat and lie or whatever. When I have all that I need and then some. But now that all of that is gone, you want to know what will come out? The animal will come out. You get it? I mean, this is when you get to the reality that that idol who that you think will ultimately fulfill you will let you down and will ultimately ultimately become the cause of your demise. The animal will come out. Desperation. He may. Cheat. He may steal. He may lie. He may even kill to get what he thinks he needs and what he wants to get his God. When what do we do for our gods? We sacrifice to them. Right. If God is your God and Christ is the one who laid down his life as a sacrifice for you to come to know him. And guess what? You actually become the sacrifice in love for others. You lay your life down in love for God and others. But if something else is your God, a.k.a. money, you want to know what will happen? You will still sacrifice, but it won't be you. It'll be other people. It'll be other things. You'll cut down folks to get the job promotions that you need because you need that bottom line to be padded a little bit more. 
You'll be fierce. You will sacrifice to your God. And ultimately, it will end up killing you, though not as a living sacrifice poured out in love for God and others, but just as a mess in a destructive sort of way. So you have one, the first, you get all the others. You don't have the first, you don't have any of the others. That's what Jesus is driving at. He's going after the heart. What do you love, man? What do you want? Is it money or is it God? Sell all you have. Come follow me. But we realize that this man never really did have it after all. The way that he responds, right? We come out in verse 23, and this is what we read. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. In other words, if you are asking me to choose, Jesus, between God, eternal life, whatever, and money, well, the choice is clear. I can't live without money. I'll try, I'll try, I'll try to make it without God. The thing that we love, if it's not God, the thing we love more than God will be the thing that undoes us. Note the correlation between his extreme riches And his extreme sadness here. I think it's foretelling his demise. Note the correlation between extreme riches and extreme sadness. That which we think will lead us to joy ultimately leaves us in the place of sorrow. And we're being warned as we watch this man leave full of grief. The word translated very sad here, perilupos in the Greek, it's a strong word. It's only used a few times in the New Testament. Two of those times are with reference to Jesus when he's in Gethsemane. Perhaps you remember, he's trembling there in the shadows as he's contemplating the cross that he's about to bear for you and me. And he says this, my soul is very sorrowful, perilupos, even to death. The idea here is there's this deep grief, almost the sort of grief you would have at like a funeral for someone, something who has died. And that's the idea. That's what this man feels. You are asking me to give up my money. That's like asking me to give up my life. No. You see, when you attach your heart so intently to something, when that thing goes, you feel like your life goes with it. I gave this example last week, and I'll just reference it again. I I talked about that movie, The Company Man, and this guy who loses his job, and, and his whole life was built on that job, and his identity was found there in that company, and in his, in his position on the top. And when in recession, he loses that job, he tells his buddy, he says, listen, my, not my job ended, but my life ended. When I got that you know, two-week notice, I got a death sentence. My life ended. Why? Not because his life truly ended, but because his life was so interwoven, his heart was so attached to that thing. That when that thing went, his life went with it. And that's really what you see happening here with this man. I can't part with my money. That's my life. The guy in the movie ends up killing himself. The man in our story goes away very sad. 
These things end up destroying us in the end. They don't go on. They don't last. And then what becomes of us then when our hearts have been interwoven? If God is not our God, what becomes of us then? Let me end with this. Um, There is an an interesting note made in Mark's account uh, of the same incident. So Mark, you know, wrote a different gospel and and, in a different angle on some of these stories. And in his uh, account, he talks about this same incident that Jesus has here with this rich ruler. And there's something that he brings out that I thought would prove to be um, significant at this point. We, We might think. Uh, that Jesus is, is being a little bit harsh with this man. We might think, man, Jesus, come on, lighten up. You're so rigid. You're so demanding. You're so ruthless. You're so callous. It's, it's upsetting. I mean, we're talking about the jealousy of God here. No, I will not share your affection with anything else. <laughs> that sounds rigid. It sounds a little bit scary. Come on, chill. Sounds mean even. Watching this guy go away sad. Lower your standards a bit. Let him in. Why does Jesus do this? Tell you why he does it. Because he loves him. This is what Mark says. It's beautiful. After hearing the young man say he's kept the commandments, this is how Jesus describes, or I'm sorry, Mark describes Jesus' response. Mark 10, 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It just inserts a little piece there to explain the motivation Jesus has for this whole go and sell everything you have. You make one thing. What's the piece that Mark interposes in between the, the I've kept all the commandments. Well, there's one more thing. It's that he loves him. He looked upon him and he loved him. He said, man, you are dumb. Think you've kept the commandments. Let me show you how big of a fool you are. Get out of my kingdom. I want people like, no, he looked on him, even in his arrogance, even in his self-confidence, and he loved him. And that's why he goes on to say, we're going to have to reach towards your heart. There's another God there and it will kill you in the end. I want you to place me there. I want you to let me there. I'm not going to let you down. Like your money well in other words because he so loves this man he wants to address what this man so loves it's a severe mercy but it's mercy nonetheless and I wonder if you noticed Jesus's goal is not to leave this man empty handed if you're if you're if your God is money, then I guarantee the way that you read that probably is. Oh, my gosh, what is he saying about money? Do I need to get rid of my money? Oh, my goodness. And you miss the fact that he's not just saying give something up. He's saying give up to gain. You don't even notice. He's saying. I'm going to give you myself. <laughs> Yes, you may lose your stuff, but you gain me. Did you did you catch it? It's not sell all that you have, give to the poor and get on your way. I'll see you in paradise when the day comes. No, it's sell all your stuff, give to the poor and come follow me. It's the great me of Jesus Christ that he is offering that's the exchange. It's not all your stuff for nothing. It's, it's give up this for Christ, for God, for Him. As one commentator has put it, God is not only more demanding than people care to think, He's also more generous than they dare to hope. 
It's demanding, no doubt. And we feel it. But we often miss how incredibly generous he is. We have no idea what he's hoping to give. And what life, when he is fully set on the throne of our hearts, is like. Jesus never asks us to give up anything without also promising to give us more of himself. He scars us, you might say, to save us. He breaks us to build us. He wounds us to heal us. We are as men cast overboard, as it were, in the sea of this world. And we are clinging tightly to our idols as if they are lifesavers, when in reality they are stones. And because Jesus loves us, and it is a ruthless love, it is a caustic kindness. Because He loves us, sometimes He's going to rip that stone from our hands so that He can save our lives. I was um, reading something this past week and it captured this idea perfectly. I wanted to read it uh, to you here at the end because I, I, uh, I know God is probably doing this with some of us. He's always doing it in one way. Our hearts are always wandering. That hymn is true. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. That's the cry of the child of God all the way to glory. Just struggling. And I know that God, because he loves us, because he loves you, is going to be going after certain things in your heart, certain attachments. I know that there are probably certain dreams and hopes and longings that he's not giving You have them. You've prayed time and time again. Maybe he even gave them to you momentarily just to take them back again. And you're in this place going, what in the world? God, why? Why are you doing this to me? What do you want? What are you doing? Well, tell you what he's doing on the authority of this text he's saving your life he's saving your life he is drawing you deeper into himself true love doesn't let you hang on to the very thing that will drown you destroy you He wants your heart because he wants what's best. Now, this comes from Ray Ortland, a great pastor who's retired now, but amazing things to say. And he begins by quoting A.W. Tozer. Here's what he writes A.W. Tozer wisely said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has heard him deeply. Did you hear that? It is doubtful. Whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And Ortland goes on. At some point in your life, God will injure you so extremely that the self-reliance you aren't even aware of, the self-reliance with which you've been navigating so consistently by that it feels natural and innocent, will collapse under the loss and anguish. You will start realizing, oh, so this is what it means to trust the Lord. (laughs) I need him now with an urgency, a desperation, a seriousness of purpose deeper than ever before. And then God will come through for you. And you will emerge from that suffering a deeper saint. (laughs) Did you you hear that? (laughs) At some point in your life, God will injure you so extremely. (laughs) that the self-reliance you aren't even aware of is exposed. It's what he's doing with this man who thought he was good. And then he realizes, well, I've been relying on money. I've been trusting in money. Anybody can be decently good and generous when they have it all. And it's exposed and it wounds and it hurts. But Jesus' aim is to save. His aim is not to take from us, but to give more of himself to us. He knows wealth, riches, whatever else, fill in the blank, will let us down in the end. But that he himself will not. 
Died for our sins, yes, but rose again, life incorruptible. This is why, and I'll just read you this as we close. In John 16, 22, he tells his disciples this. He says, listen, you have sorrow now. Why? Because you're going to see me die. You're going to watch me die. You will have sorrow now. But I will see you again. Why? Because I'm going to rise. And your hearts will rejoice. And here's the key for me. And no one will take your joy from you. That's his goal. We attach our hearts to these other things that perish with use, have expiration dates. Our joy will go with it. We attach our hearts to Christ, the one crucified for us, risen to live forevermore. Listen, no one can take your joy from you because it's attached to him. Where he goes, so goes your life, your joy, your satisfaction. So I'll begin or I'll end where I began. What are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? What are you delighting in? Where's your heart? Let's pray. God, we ask right now that you would do whatever you need to do. So that our hearts would be attached more firmly to you. We know you mean good for us, even in the tears, even in the pain. We know. We've watched it play out with our Savior as he was mocked and scourged and crucified. And then you came through with eternal life. Incorruptible. Rose him from the dead. And God, we need your help. Jesus, we need your help. We might walk that same path. Let go of all that the earth has to offer and trust you. Hold on to you and you alone. Would you send your spirit? Would you enable what we in ourselves could never do? We love you, God, and we thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.